0: I am Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. Show. We are still in Minnesota.
1: The great state, the star of the north.
0: Yep. Lots of lots of water, lots of lakes.
1: Lots of lots of mosquitoes, apparently. Yeah. Like I'm sure you've heard that joke where it's like the state bird of Minnesota is actually the mosquito.
0: <laughs> I have not, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, because there's so much water there, they're really prevalent. Oh, yeah.
0: Because they they breed in water, they lay their eggs. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. It actually takes us to our first weird law for Minnesota, too. Oh. In the state of Minnesota, mosquitoes are officially, according to law, a public nuisance.
0: Okay. Well, they should be because they're, like I said before, nature's dirty fucking needles. (laughs) (laughs) I read a list of the most dangerous animals in the world, and mosquitoes is number one because they carry so many freaking diseases. I
1: believe it. I believe it. Um, I do have a other couple of weird laws from Minnesota. They were pretty straightforward, but they do have a lot of odd laws aside from the mosquitoes about how you treat animals in the state.
0: Okay. Well, I like that about them then.
1: Yeah, I agree. So they have a lot of common sense laws like it's illegal to tease skunks in Minnesota.
0: Well, I mean, you're going to get some pretty instant karma there if you tease a skunk. Exactly.
1: It's good common sense not to mess with skunks. This one I thought was hilarious. If a wild boar escapes in Minneapolis or St. Paul, the commissioner of agriculture himself must go out and capture it. Holy crap. I don't know who the minister or the commissioner of agriculture pissed off at some point in the past, but. (laughs) like, You know
0: what? You're doing this yourself from now on, dude. I hope he gets paid a lot for that. God damn
1: it, John. The boar's escaped again.
0: How how many boars do they have? Is that like a big problem? I've never seen a wild boar. (laughs)
1: Um, It's also illegal in Minnesota to cross state lines with a duck atop your head. Damn. I I don't know. There goes my weekend. I know. I don't know why you would wear ducks as hats. Um, But apparently it's also a serious thing because people like to wear chickens on their head in Minnesota. What is with Minnesota? (laughs) It's illegal to cross the state line with Wisconsin with a chicken on your head. So, I mean what's up with that minnesotans
0: yeah i mean we found out the ice cream thing maybe we can find this out now
1: the the uh, waterfowl slash poultry headdresses yeah i don't know and that's the other thing it didn't say if it was live ducks or live chickens It just across the board don't wear them as a chapeau
0: duck that i'm gonna do it anyway
1: <laughs> um and my last e weird minnesota law which i was just kind of like that's really weird to regulate is that it is illegal to sleep naked or have oral sex in Minnesota. So probably not the best place for a honeymoon.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Honestly, and this is weird and probably TMI. (laughs) Get ready. I suffer from restless leg syndrome. Sometimes what helps is sleeping naked.
1: I bet you get a doctor's note.
0: I could probably get a doctor's note. You have to
1: travel to Minnesota. You don't want to get arrested for sleeping naked.
0: I mean, who's going to freaking check, though? I say that now, and then I'll wind up in the slammer. So (laughs) please send fan mail to the big house. (laughs) Well, I hear that you have a very nice story for us. A delightful one.
1: It is actually delightful. It's partially unsolved, so I will say that. Okay. So just want to prepare you in advance, because I know sometimes you get irritated when things are unsolved.
0: I do, because I just want to know. I'm one of those people, like I said, with my ex-husband, if I knew he was lying about something and I needed to know the truth, he'd be sleeping. I'd be lying there awake. And I'm like, well, if he said he was here at 3.05 p.m. and then didn't get there till 3.11 p.m., <laughs> where the hell was he? I know something's up.
1: Well, I think the story itself, however, will make up for the absence of complete closure.
0: Okay. I'll trust you on this one.
1: Okay. So we're headed to... I don't
0: trust you often, so... <laughs>
1: We're headed to St. Louis Park, Minnesota. It's a suburban city just west of Minneapolis. It has a population of about 45,000 people, and it's almost 11 square miles in size. It's very much like a direct suburb of Minneapolis. Okay. It was founded as Elmwood in 1852. The city was incorporated and renamed St. Louis Park in 1886. Now, the name St. Louis Park comes from the Minneapolis-St. Louis Railway, which ran through the area, and the word park was added to the city name to avoid confusion with St. Louis, Missouri. For most of its early history, St. Louis Park was pretty small, with only a few thousand residents and a couple of shops in the town. That's mostly because it was really close to Minneapolis by streetcar, so most residents actually worked and shopped in the city rather than St. Louis Park. Okay. The financial panic of 1893 slowed growth dramatically in St. Louis Park, and by the 1930s, the city still only had about 5,000 residents. While further growth and development continued to slow down even more during World War II, St. Louis Park experienced a massive post-war boom. Between 1940 and 1955, the growth rate was an average of about seven people moving into St. Louis Park every day. 60% 60% of St. Louis Park's homes were built during this time in between the late 40s and early 50s. By 1955, almost 38,000 people called St. Louis Park home. So you basically go from like six, 7,000 to 38,000 in the matter of about 15 years.
0: Okay, wow. Uh,
1: the city continued to grow and develop steadily during the last 70 years or so, um, and St. Louis Park is still pretty economically entwined with Minneapolis today. St. Louis Park is also, the birthplace or childhood home of quite a few famous people. The directors Joel and Ethan Cohen grew up there. So did musician Peter Hamlinman, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, former Senator Al Franken, songwriter Dan Israel, guitarist Sharon Isbin, and film director Joe Nussbaum are all from St. Louis Park. It's a
0: lot of big names. Mm
1: hmm. It's funny because the Coen brothers actually did set one of their films, A Serious Man, in St. Louis Park. Okay. So for them, it's like I think St. Louis Park is very tied to their moving making aesthetic.
0: Yeah, so it's a nice little throwback to mm-hmm. where they come from. I mm-hmm, like it. Mm-hmm.
1: And St. Louis Park was also the scene of something else. One of the biggest, priciest, and most infamous art theft in Minnesota's history. Oh. This is the story of the Elaine Gallery heist, a.k.a. the Rockwell heist.
0: Wow, okay. So we obviously know whose painting it was.
1: I always feel like somebody's watching watching me. Sorry, the whole time I was typing, I kept hearing that stupid Rockwell song. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay, but on to the heist. On February 16th, 1978, more than 500 people attended a showing dedicated to the painter Norman Rockwell's 84th birthday at Elaine Galleries in St. Louis Park. Now, the famous artist himself was not among the attendees, But the people who did show up that day got to enjoy some delicious champagne and birthday cake while they admired a collection that included eight original Rockwell paintings, numerous Rockwell lithographs, and a seascape attributed to French Impressionist Pierre-Auguste Renoir. Elaine and Russ Limburg, the owners of the gallery, had a national reputation for handling Rockwell works, so this exhibit was right up their alley. It was also one of the largest exhibits to ever display his work in a private show. On display were two Rockwell paintings that the Limburgs themselves owned, as well as Rockwell paintings loaned from two private collectors and from Brown and Bigelow, the St. Paul calendar maker who had been commissioning images from Rockwell for reproduction since the 1920s. Alrighty. Now, the Limburgs had been residents of St. Louis Park since the 1950s, and they had been running Elaine Galleries since 1971. They had recently moved to a larger new gallery space on Excelsior Boulevard in 1977. The Rockwell birthday exhibit was one of the largest exhibitions they had hosted in their newer 2,000 square foot gallery space. Upon moving to the new gallery space, the Lindberghs hired a contractor to install an audio alarm system and theft-proof slash unpickable locks for the gallery doors.
0: Ooh, okay. Well, that obviously didn't work so well, but... Not so much.
1: For the Rockwell exhibit, too, they added extra security. They hired a Pinkerton security guard for the gallery to be there during the exhibition and also overnight while they had the paintings on display. But it turned out, as you mentioned, that all of the Lindbergh's preparation were pretty much useless. After all, the guests went home that night and the gallery closed. A gang of four or so thieves cut the cord on the alarm, used a tool to punch in the unpickable lock, and then slipped into the gallery undetected by the Pinkerton guard.
0: Gotta cut that cord sometime.
1: (laughs) Uh, We don't really know exactly where that guard was at the time. Uh, He just stepped away for some reason around a quarter after midnight.
0: I mean, he's like a Pinkerton, so he's supposed to be like pretty damn good at his job, but... One would think. Guess
1: not. The thieves made off with seven paintings. Date slash Cowgirl and Date slash Cowboy, which were the two paintings owned by Elaine and Russ Lindbergh, The Spirit of 76, No Swimming, and Summer, owned by Brown and Bigelow. She's My Baby, owned by collector Robert Horbath, and an unnamed seascape painting by Renoir, owned by Robert Buddy Veerson. This painting was later discovered to be a forgery. Oh. These were the most valuable paintings on display in the gallery that night, and the total value of the theft was $500,000. Damn. Mm-hmm. Another highly valuable Rockwell painting, the Boy Scout, was left behind along with a large plastic bag. It seems that the thieves may have been interrupted before they could bag the Boy Scout and left in a hurry. The theft was discovered by the security guard around 1130 a.m. that night, and the police arrived at the scene shortly afterwards. Now, investigators started collecting evidence right away, and they also, of course, interviewed the security guard and the Lindberghs. The Lindberghs told them that, actually, come to think of it, the day before, three guys showed up at the gallery, and they didn't really seem like your typical customers. One of them even wore sunglasses while he walked around the gallery looking at paintings, which I mean, I get that you're cool and all, but like, seriously, yeah, that's not no way to enjoy art. Now, after these men had split up and browsed a little bit, they gathered around the room where the Renoir seascape was on display. Gallery employees overheard the men discussing the painting's value and what kind of measures might be in place to secure it. Russ Lindbergh Got really suspicious. So when the three guys left, he followed them outside and saw them climb into a white 1972 Chevrolet. And he quickly jotted down the license plate.
0: Good for him. Right. Because that is super suspicious. Why the hell do you be like, oh, so yeah, how much is this worth? Oh, and uh, what what security measures did you take? Yeah,
1: exactly. And he's like, uh. Just writing this down, mm, not
0: for any bad reason, I swear. Um,
1: asking for a friend. Yeah. So Russ Lindbergh gave the investigators the plate number and they ran it. And it unfortunately turned out to be a dead end. They discovered that the car had been bought and sold several times over the previous month, and they could only identify one owner who, after they talked to him, they quickly discounted as a suspect. Yeah. Next, the investigators used the description of the three suspicious gallery visitors that they had gotten from the Lindberghs and their employees to put together a photo lineup. After showing the lineup to gallery employees, they were able to identify one man. I wasn't able to find his name in any of my sources since the suspect's name was redacted from all the publicly released investigation files. Yeah, very suspicious. But a couple of my sources did say that the man was described by an informant as, quote, an excellent burglar with numerous organized crime contacts who was good for the job.
0: Damn. And you said one guy was wearing sunglasses, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Was it nighttime? No, it was during the day. Okay, then it's not Corey Hart. (laughs)
1: Whew, cleared <sighs> now the suspect that they were able to identify from the photo lineup was linked to an other man who was a well-known Minneapolis like criminal kingpin however that too turned out to be a dead end they couldn't tie this kingpin of crime to the gallery whatsoever and the investigators unfortunately couldn't find any evidence to bring the guy identified in the lineup in for questioning either yeah so yet another dead end.
0: Damn, they're not doing a very good job of this.
1: Mm-mm. So, the investigators began to look into the painting's owners for some fresh leads. The Limburgs were a super interesting couple, actually. So, aside from owning this gallery, it turns out that during the 1940s, Russ had been a stage magician and Elaine had been his assistant.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's yeah, pretty cool.
1: They had been like magicians. So, for... maybe
0: they made the paintings disappear.
1: Perhaps. They had a 15-year career as stage musicians. They specialized in the Houdini-esque tricks like escaping from a trunk. Okay. Things like that. So illusionists. They can make things disappear but never reappear. Oh. <laughs> now, when they moved...
0: So if I need to hide a body, go to them. Gotcha.
1: <laughs> when the Lindberghs finally decided to settle down, they moved to St. Louis Park in 1950. Russ started an interior design business, and the couple had two children. Elaine basically stayed home during this time to raise her kids. Now, while Russ's interior design business grew, he started buying and selling art as a side business since he came across it a lot.
0: Because, you know, when you have money, what else are you going to do?
1: Exactly. Uh, one of the sources was like, basically like he would go into these wealthy people's homes and they'd be like, I don't want that painting anymore. And he would just buy it from them. Nice. And then he could sell it to another client, which is kind of awesome. That's in pretty my, in cool. My, my book. Yeah. Um. So... As the Lindbergh children got older, basically when they were in junior high, Elaine started to get bored. So she taught herself handwriting analysis.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah. She got so good at it that she started getting tapped as an expert witness. Wow. Yeah. So basically when local attorneys or private clients even needed somebody to check signatures, um, they would go to Elaine and she even testified in quite a few for- forgery trials during like the nineteen early 1960s.
0: That is so cool.
1: Right? I'm like, these are a really interesting yeah. couple. Yeah. <laughs> so Elaine's stint as a expert handwriting analysis kind of led her into this career as a department store detective in Minneapolis. Oh, cool. Yeah. And I guess she really enjoyed it, but crime started to uptick in Minneapolis in the late 60s. And Russ worried for Elaine because she was basically confronting like shoplifters and stuff yeah and after a man pulled a gun on her at work oh shit elaine kind of decided that you know maybe it's time for me to leave this job
0: there was only one time that i had to like fill in mm-hmm. for the loss prevention guy oh goodness um because he had something else to do and there were possibly multiple shoplifters in the store mm-hmm. so i sat there watching all the monitors and i was like steal something come on you know you want to <laughs> Just- wouldn't it be so easy just to shove that in your pocket?
1: Eden, that's not how that works.
0: <laughs> I wanted to catch someone, damn it.
1: <laughs> so uh, basically, by the end of the sixties, Elaine had left her job as a secure department store t- detective, and Russ also closed his interior design business to focus on dealing art full time because it was much more lucrative than his design business. And together, they created the Elaine Gallery. Okay. Now, while the Limburgs had lost two valuable paintings in the heist, the other two private collectors, so uh, Bob Horvath and Buddy Viersen, had also lost valuable works of art. And they were super pissed.
0: Well, I mean, the one was a forgery, you said, though.
1: Correct. But he didn't know it at the time.
0: Okay. I didn't know if he was trying to pass it off as the real thing or if he bought it and didn't know. No, he
1: was kind of duped and he thought it was real, but it wasn't. Okay. Now, it's interesting because both of these guys were super piffed at the Lindberghs and they threatened to sue the gallery. Uh-oh. Now, for Bob Horvath, who owned She's My Baby, this was, like, extra awful news because he was already under investigation for money laundering. Oh,
0: shit.
1: And this just compounded his financial and legal worries. No. Yeah. I mean, luckily for the Lindberghs, uh, before he could actually follow through with suing them for the loss of his painting, he was arrested and convicted of money laundering and sent to jail.
0: Damn. Okay.
1: The other collector, Robert Buddy Veerson, um, who also contemplated suing the couple is also an interesting guy. So he was reportedly this like high end fence with ties to organized crime. Oh man. He was from the Bloomington area and he, on paper, was a investor in a wholesale liquor business, but according to the FBI, he was also chronically in debt to bookmakers.
0: What if they stole their own paintings? Possibly. I'm sorry. That's where my mind's going right now. I'm like, what if they both had issues and they decided to be like, okay, well, we're going to steal the paintings. That way we get their paintings, still have <laughs> our paintings, and then we can sue them too. Yeah.
1: I mean, it didn't work out so well for Horvath, but uh, Veersen was interesting too because uh, there was one source I read where... He had just got he would just purchased that Renoir seascape yeah. right before the show, like a couple months prior, and he had worked with the Limbergs in the past to acquire art here and there. And when they put it on display, Elaine was very clear, being like, "Hey, make sure you have it insured. We have the gallery insured, but this is such a valuable painting. If it's an like you know it's an original Impressionist painting, you also want to get insurance for it as well." And he lied to her and was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I totally have insurance." Oh great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What an asshole.
1: Yeah. So like I said, like he had a working business relationship with them. He had purchased several works of art and sold several works through the gallery over the years. Um, And with that Renoir, in fact, he actually went to Elaine to verify the purchase since she was an art dealer. She was skilled in handwriting analysis. He figured she's the perfect person.
0: What year did you say this was?
1: This is like 1978. Okay. Uh, Early 1978 is when the heist happened. So this renoir painting is kind of weird, right? So this guy Vierson is on a trip to Florida and while he's flying down to Florida, he starts chatting up this flight attendant, and she tells him, Oh, hey, you know, you're into art. I have a friend who's a recent Cuban immigrant and he's trying to unload his art collection like on the down low and smuggle it out of Cuba before Castro's government can seize it. Yeah. Would you be interested? And the painting, uh, market value of this Renoir painting would be something like $100,000. And she was offering it to him for $10,000. And he's like, oh, it's a great deal. But something, you know, I'll just ask my friend Elaine mm-hmm. to verify it. Now, Elaine said sure, because it was a client. They'd done a lot of business together. Yeah,
0: you have a business relationship. So mm-hmm. You want to keep that.
1: But she was a Rockwell expert. Like, that was her thing. That's what her and her husband did. Yeah. They did American art. So she was really out of her depth when it came to identifying and, and verifying this Renoir. She did her best, but she missed that the painting was actually a fake. I Elaine, mean
0: she, just stick to your handwriting analysis. It's cooler anyway. I mean, she did
1: analyze the signature. She used, you know, like a, the blue light method to determine if the paint was like aged properly. That sort of stuff. Like she did her due diligence, but yeah. because she wasn't an expert, she didn't know what to look for. Exactly. Yeah.
0: No, I'm not blaming her.
1: Damn it, Elaine. <laughs> so. Here's where it gets even crazier. When investigators started looking into the deal that Veerson made for their Renoir painting, they discovered that the flight attendant had a record. Oh, man. She had actually been arrested as part of a larger art forgery ring with ties to organized crime that operate out of Florida. Okay. Earlier in the 1970s, this ring of art forgers had tried to unload the fake Renoir to an art dealer in Bethel, Minnesota. And they'd also sold two fake Rembrandts in
0: 1975.
1: Damn. So investigators started going, hmm, this seems super sketchy. This guy with organized crime ties. Oh, yeah. It's tied to this forgery ring. Yep. And there was a lot of debate of like, was he an actual victim or was he in on it? Most sources seem to think that Veerson was actually a victim of this art scheme who got in over his head. Okay. He was in debt to these bookies. These bookies also had ties to this organized crime ring of art forgery and they think that he may have helped set up the Elaine Gallery heist as part of paying back the money he owed.
0: See, so my thought wasn't Mm -hmm. so far off the mark. True. You should be a detective. Told ya.
1: (laughs) Here's where it gets even more sketchy, dude. It turns out that that contractor that the Lindberghs hired to uh, install the alarm and that unpickable lock in their new gallery space. Oh. Guess who was a buddy of his? Who? Buddy Veerson. Fuck. Yep. So the investigators are like, all right, we got to bring this guy in. And they bring him in.
0: Absolutely. He seems really suspicious now, like more than before. Super
1: suspicious. So they bring in Veersen and they ask him about this Renoir, deer. Like, what what made you want to buy this painting? It doesn't fit with the other art that you collect over the years. Like, all these questions. And Veersen's super evasive. Like, he won't answer any other questions about why he bought it or the actual circumstances between, like, who he paid, that sort of thing. But he does say that he was entirely convinced by elaine's expert review of the painting that it was real when he bought the painting so he thought it was a a genuine article
0: he could have also known that about elaine that she only really did american stuff
1: oh yeah for sure for sure that's the other thing right because like he was a fence so like most people who are like operate a pawn shop and like the illegal fencing activity that's the same kind of gig right it's like you have your set of experts and you go to the person who knows the thing that you're going to purchase So it does seem really weird that he would go to an expert in American paintings for like a French impressionist painting. It's
0: very fishy.
1: Now, after this, of course, the investigators are like, we got to focus on Buddy Viersen. He's the connection. And this leads, unfortunately, to another dead end. But this time it's literal. Uh Uh-oh. About three months after the Elaine Gallery robbery, Viersen dies at the age of 40 from a heart attack. Bye-bye, Buddy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye, Buddy.
0: Was it a heart attack or was it arsenic?
1: that is a great question there were lots of rumors saying that he was probably actually killed by his criminal associates who were really nervous about all the connections that oh yeah the investigators were making because it
0: seems like they were putting pressure on him and he was probably gonna sing so
1: probably but there was nothing that was suspicious about his actual death so maybe it was just the pressure on him that they're turning up on him and he was like concerned but But remember
0: all of our lady Poisoner stories with the arsenic it always comes back to heart attack it's
1: true he could have been killed
0: i have a very suspicious mind guys i really do and <laughs> <laughs> these are my thoughts this is what keeps me up at night
1: so after veerson's death all the leads kind of dry up and the case goes cold for decades well almost every few years some anonymous person pops out of the woodwork and contacts the Limburgs. Or Bob Horvath's lawyer about returning the Rockwell paintings that were stolen. Oh. Sometimes these people are like, Oh, hey, we found these paintings at an estate sale. We wanna, you know, return them to you for a finder's fee. And the finders fee would be like exorbitant, it'd be like eighty thousand dollars. Of course. Other times they would say, Oh, these paintings are being held by a private collector in Europe or Brazil. Other times they would just straight up threaten to destroy the paintings unless they got the ransom.
0: Damn, okay. And this kind that of that escalated quickly. Yes.
1: And this would happen off and on again, pretty much through like the 1980s. And this whole time, Elaine and Russ are still looking for their painting on the on the down low, like keeping their eye out for um, the, the paintings that were stolen and our auctions, things like that. But they never really come across anything. A couple of times they do try to follow up on these leads about these paintings being held in like Rio de Janeiro by collectors, but nothing ever really pans out. Elaine Lindbergh uh, passes away in 1994, and Russ dies shortly thereafter in 1996.
0: Ah, damn, they're dead. Okay.
1: But their daughter, Bonnie, took over the gallery business and continued the search for the missing paintings. Then, in 1999, Bonnie is contacted by a collector in Brazil. And he says, I have both of your parents' paintings. If you would like them back, I will sell them to you for slightly below market. And basically because they were stolen and then resold to this collector, they were legally his according to like Brazilian law. So she didn't really have any legal recourse. So she says, okay, I'll give you half the money and you send one of the paintings and then I'll come to Brazil in person to collect the other painting and bring you the rest of the money. And she does this and she actually brings, it was interesting, like a, like a local Minnesota television crew went with her oh wow and like it was on the news like her going and seeing and this painting and like crying a little bit because it's something her parents spent the rest yeah. of their life looking for it was interesting then there was this other side story where like there was also like this art heist uh operation investigation unit at the fbi who were kind of pissed off about this because yeah they were just trying to work out like a tr- i guess that there's a lot of stolen art in south america and they were mm-hmm. trying to work out some kind of treaty deal with brazil yeah and they did eventually in 2001, but this happened right before that. Oh, man. So either way, Bonnie got back her parents' paintings.
0: Well, that's good at least.
1: Mm-hmm. She got it back for $105,000. And when she got back to the States, she basically turned around and sold them at auction in New York City. And she got 180000 for the paintings.
0: Well, I could imagine people wanting to spend even more on these since mm-hmm. there's so much history then to yep. them.
1: They're tied to a heist. They were off the market and missing for yeah. years, for decades, really. Uh, the other paintings. Maybe they did her a favor. Yeah, I know, right? The other paintings that were stolen in the heist still haven't been recovered. Um, to this day, we don't actually know who stole them on that winter night in 1978 or where they ended up. But we do know that they're out there somewhere. And somebody definitely has them because if Bonnie was able to get back those first two paintings from oh, yeah. her parents, that her parents owned, there could be hope in the future.
0: I definitely think it's some sort of conspiracy because um, like there's just too many different coincidences. Mm-hmm. And most of the time with coincidence, it's not freaking coincidence. There is something going on.
1: Yeah. I, I almost feel a little bit like there there's definitely a setup here.
0: Buddy knew something. Yeah. Because and... he was tied to the people that did all the security then too, you said. Yep. Right. So yep. and some definitely. people
1: some people were like, you know, the people if it was the art theft ring that did it and they they knew the renoir was a forgery yep. that's probably why they stole that one too exactly so either that veerson wouldn't find out or that it would like take some of the questioning off of him
0: yeah and then he could be like what do you mean it was a forgery oh mm-hmm. i spent all mm-hmm. my money on that exactly
1: yeah. but yeah that's the story of the uh elaine gallery heist or the rockwell heist i thought it was super interesting not just yeah. for what happened but also for the people involved were like so unique and cool oh yeah they are i'm like oh
0: and i'm i'm not gonna lie i was like oh no murder but then like the <laughs> second you started telling it i was like i love this story Look, i still, am so definite, into man. yeah
1: <laughs> there's no conclusion we don't really know what happened but we can guess
0: that is was a really cool story i'm so glad that you did that one <laughs> And I mean, it was, it was different. It was something that we don't normally do. And I really liked it.
1: Yeah. I was trying to art heists are hard. I've been trying to find one since New York and all yeah. of them are kind of boring. Yeah. This one was actually very intriguing. So
0: that was really cool. I really liked that.
1: Uh, my sources for the story were Wikipedia, Minnesota, monthly.com, St. Louis park, historical side society, star tribune.com and ranker.com. Awesome.
0: I'm glad that I got to flex my mystery muscles.
1: you wouldn't make a good detective
0: it's uh, like the reason that I asked you like when was this when did this take place and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and then I was like damn they're dead Uh, because I'm like if I ever do get my PI license I'm gonna be like hi you want to hire me I'll solve this (laughs) crime (laughs) because I'm just too invested now and I want to know art theft I know. Maybe art theft can be like my thing.
1: Maybe. You have to learn lots of uh, analysis for that one.
0: And solving it, not committing it, guys, just so you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, gang, we'll take a short break and then we'll be back. I believe Eden has a couple of delightful treats for you around the corner. I do. See you then.
0: Don't steal anything while we're gone. And we are back.
1: I didn't steal anything. Don't worry.
0: Good. I have a pretty funny, weird Weird. news article.
1: All right. What's weird news of the week?
0: Man blows up part of house while chasing fly.
1: (laughs) I got to know. I got to know.
0: Yeah. So, uh, he, he is 80 years old. So he's an older guy. Um, he was about to, you know, eat his dinner, uh, and he became, like, really irritated because there was just this fly buzzing around him.
1: I get that. I get very intense when I'm trying to murder a fly.
0: Exactly. Especially if something gets in the way of my food. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. You know I love to eat. Uh, so he picked up an electric fly swatter.
1: Okay. Yeah, I've seen those.
0: And he just, uh, you know, started going for it. Uh, but there was a leaky gas canister in the home. And so a reaction between that device and the gas caused an explosion. It destroyed the kitchen and partly damaged the roof of the house as well. Uh, this is in France, by the way, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce the place names. <laughs> um, so, however, the, the fate of the fly is completely unknown, according to this article. <laughs> is the uh, man okay? The guy escaped. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, he has, He got burned on his hands. But other than that, he's fine. Um. So, yeah.
1: The lesson here is... As much as those gadgets look cool, maybe just use a fly swatter. Yeah. Yeah. Or get a cat. Or open a window.
0: Or open a window. Wait, we don't like opening windows, Nicole. Remember, episode one.
1: Just, <laughs> just to let a fly out and then close <laughs> it right away and lock it.
0: Yeah. You let that fly out to get in. All right. So I do have my story.
1: Yeah. Lay it on me. I'm curious to see what you'd uncovered in Minnesota.
0: Okay. My story for this week takes place in Sox Center. Minnesota. I'd never heard of it before, and I've noticed that Minnesota seems to have a lot of city and town names that are kind of different from most other places. Agreed. They just have, like, in my opinion, strange names. This one is also in Stearns County, just like last week. It isn't a very big place with a population of 4,317 and an area of 4.15 square miles. It has sort of an interesting story when it comes to its name. It was chosen by lottery. Hmm. Basically, what had happened was that there were like about eight people that owned uh, the land that Sock Center was going to be on. Okay. And they all just threw in their names that they wanted into a hat and this one won.
1: Very democratic of them. Exactly. Or random. Whichever. Yeah, it was
0: just very randomly selected. Uh, now, the name itself is meant to honor the Sock tribe, who I guess used to be in the area. But they were in the area by the time that the town was there. There was other tribes that had already come in and taken it. Interesting. From what I gathered anyway. The center part is all about location. And it is spelled R-E, by the way. <sighs> yeah. So it's very European. So the town is also home to a novelist and Nobel Prize winner, Sinclair Lewis.
1: I know Sinclair Lewis.
0: Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for things to do in this town most of them seem to center around him
1: makes sense it's a small town and he's pretty freaking famous
0: yeah so you can visit Sinclair Lewis's childhood home which is also a museum of sorts now or you could go to Sinclair Lewis Park uh, which is a park by Salk Lake and from the pictures that I've seen it looks very relaxing there's also spots for kids to play if you have children The other big draw of this little town is the subject of today's story, the Palmer House Hotel. So it's time to get your luggage out of the trunk because we're ready to check in. (laughs) The Palmer House Hotel was first built in 1901 and from the pictures just isn't as impressive as I had assumed. Uh, When any hotel has the word house in the title, I always imagine it to be a home first, usually a big old Victorian or something along those lines. I see that. Uh, this house pretty much just looks like a rectangular brick building with a shit ton of windows. It really doesn't give me that haunted vibe at all, yet it's supposed to be one of the most haunted places in the country.
1: Interesting.
0: Um, one cool feature of this hotel, however, is the rounded windows on the first floor, some of which are stained glass imported from Vienna. I will gladly take all of their stained glass as long as they promise to keep their sausages to themselves. (laughs) Because I do not like Vienna sausages, guys. They're kind of gross. It got its name from the people who built it, Ralph and Christina Palmer, and it was built over the site of the city's first hotel, the Sauk Center House, which had burnt down on June 26, 1900. It's in the heart of the business district and was designed to host businessmen, uh, which was a big thing at the time since these were the days of traveling salesmen.
1: Oh, did you think they had a businessman's lunch special?
0: They probably did. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) couldn't resist. So uh, what is with Stearns County and salesman stories? I have no idea because last week we had the death of a salesman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now here we have a hotel for businessmen with lunch specials. (laughs) So the world may never know just like how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop. It, it's only like a block from the train station too, which means its location makes it even more perfect for business.
1: For sure. Yeah.
0: Apparently the locals were kind of glad uh, that the first hotel burnt down too. the hotel's website pretty much stated that the locals didn't really care for the first one and wanted a five-star hotel in the area. After doing a bit more research, I was able to find out that this hotel has a history of prostitution, gambling, and other quote, unsavory things that society frowns upon
1: so basically the sketchy ass hotel in town burned down everyone's like oh thank god
0: yeah it's pretty much the hotel lafayette in (laughs) easton so fun fact it was the first building in sauk center to get electricity ralph and christina ran the place uh with help from christina's brother and their mother ralph and christina also lived on the property with their children hazel and carlisle I'm going to mention how annoying it is to type Christina at this point because she spells it with an E instead of an I, so I have to think about it each and every time (laughs) I type it down. Uh, I'm aware no one can see my notes anyway, but I'm still just weird like that, so I have to do it right. The hotel was also used as a gathering place by locals, which is pretty common for hotels.
1: Makes sense. Probably the biggest place in town to gather.
0: Yes, exactly. So, sock Center's most famous resident whom I spoke briefly about during my intro, Sinclair Lewis, actually worked here at the front desk for two summers. Hmm. So it's definitely got a lot of history. Uh, One of his more famous works, and this may be what got him the Nobel Prize, but I don't know for sure, because I didn't bother to look it up. Uh, It's a book called Main Street, uh, which is centered around a town based on Sauk Center.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: The hotel in his story, the Minnie Mashie House, was also based on the Palmer House Hotel, and I hope never to have to say that word again. mini Yeah, that was not fun.
1: Gonna make it all the passwords for all of our stuff for the podcast Oh, God.
0: <laughs> Hear that, listeners? You can hack us now. Um, so, the building originally had 24 rooms, but when it was remodeled in 1916 by its new owners, they brought that number up to 44 with help from an architect named Roland C. Buckley. Who was from uh, last week's setting? St. Cloud.
1: Nice air connection.
0: Yeah. According to the hotel's website, however, the number is incorrect, and it had 38 rooms, and they were all quite small. Before its renovation, or maybe before the next renovation, this hotel would have been one I would never stay at because everyone shared a freaking bathroom. You know that's my biggest nope I do. when it comes to travel. I do. I'd suffer through the worst haunting ever if it meant that I could have my own bathroom. <laughs> it was remodeled again in 1993, and this one was a massive overhaul, leaving the place with 19 guest rooms, which each had their own bathrooms finally.
1: Yeah, you can stay there now. I
0: can. Remember how I said this place wasn't much to look at from the outside?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it has something even better inner beauty.
1: Cuz it has bathrooms in all the rooms now.
0: Yeah, that too, definitely. Uh I saw a few pictures from their website and the aforementioned stained glass is very pretty up close. Uh the ceilings were pretty cool. They were like drop ceilings, but they weren't like the ugly kind. Gotcha. Um it has this like reading room with a nice fireplace. Uh everything about the inside just looked really beautiful and cozy. Remember what I said about everything having its own bathroom now? Mm -hmm. It's getting better. Some of them have jacuzzi tubs, which I would love.
1: Ooh, they fancy.
0: Yep. Uh, The building was also added to the National Register of Historic Places in February of 1982. Just off the lobby, there's also a pub serving up delicious food and cocktails to enjoy. They are famous for their Bloody Marys, which I will not be trying because that is one gross drink. How do you feel about them?
1: Uh, I used to love, love them to the point where like I turned my wife on to them, and now it's that drink where I'm like, I'll just have it without the vodka, thanks, because yeah. I just like the tomato juice. I don't like tomato juice. But they they can be brutal if they're too spicy.
0: Um, I can actually make a good one, but I will never drink it.
1: I'll have to let actually know about that then yeah
0: um i joe loved them so i made them for him on occasion i tried to find their menu on their website but it wasn't there i was able to find out that they have a happy hour every day from three to six with reduced prices on certain drinks as well as two dollars off appetizers that's my kind of place (laughs) give me those cheap apps that's why i love applebee's after nine o'clock Uh, They are still in operation today and offer a plethora of events and such. They have historical tours, ghost tours, ghost hunts, and paranormal weekends, live music, and more. If you're looking to stay at this hotel, their rates vary depending on the rooms. The current pricing on the website says the rooms are available for between $72 and nearly $200 a night.
1: It's not too bad.
0: Um, yeah and I'm not sure if those are their regular prices or if like maybe they're trying to get more tourism during you know
1: the pandemic prices.
0: Yes, exactly. As far as the tours go, they are thirty dollars per person and they do include a mini investigation. really yeah. Uh, you'll be in a group with 20 people or less they don't like to put more than that in the group and you'll get to explore parts of the hotel normally not open to the public. You do have a you do have to sign a waiver. Uh, before going on the tour, however, saying that this hotel is not responsible for what might happen to you uh, from what it calls its, quote, unregistered residents." Nice way of saying ghosts. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know why all this is, Nicole?
1: I, I am super curious. I've, I've never quite heard of a haunted tour where you get to do a little mini investigation. That's cool.
0: Well, I will tell you because there's been a lot of paranormal activity in this place. First of all, I should mention that our dear frenemy, Zach Baggins, has been here and says it's hella haunted, so just take that for what you will. In the exact opposite of the Zach approach, the owner of the hotel, Kelly Freeze, says, I always tell people you don't hunt ghosts. You sit down and you ask whoever is willing to come and hang out with me, please do. I'd love to meet you and get to know your story.
1: She seems much more nice and approachable. She
0: does. So I don't know why she hired Zach knowing his methods to come, but you know, whatever. Uh, Other people have said what I said in the beginning. You walk in and it's just this charming and warm place that doesn't really give off the haunting vibe, but don't let that fool you. There's a ghost cat, which is one of my favorite types of hauntings, who will jump on the bed next to you. Uh, that I completely don't mind. I will pet a ghost cat any day of the week.
1: Uh, a hundred percent agree with that statement.
0: Another one of our quote unquote favorites. Mm. And please note the quotes there. You can hear children playing in the hallways. Even when there are no children around, this may come in the form of childlike footsteps running in the hall or children bouncing a ball.
1: As long as it's not small children laughing. That's fine.
0: That's the creepiest. Yeah. Um, which I think child laughter is something that can be heard, but don't quote me on that because I'm not sure. Eat in. Some of the more basic things are disembodied voices, cold spots, and rapid temperature shifts, slamming doors, and just things like that. Objects will also be thrown across the room in some spots. Mm. Uh, there's also another feng shui ghost that rearranges furniture. <laughs> I think they're just trying to help out. I think this chair would look better here. I'm going to use that interior design degree even after my death. Um, I did hear a story on TripAdvisor.com after looking for good ones for way too long about a couple that stayed there, and they say this place is definitely haunted. The guy said that the door to their room slammed directly in front of his wife's face, and then all night long they could hear footsteps above them, as well as heavy objects being moved around, only to realize the next day that no one was staying in the room above them.
1: Creepy. Yeah. Super creepy.
0: I was able to find out a little about a few of the ghosts that haunt this place, uh, with more to come a little later after I make what I already know will be a regrettable decision. (laughs) In room 17, one of the jacuzzi rooms, so probably one that I would stay in, you might meet the ghost of a woman named Lucy. She was apparently a sex worker who is known to cause cold spots throughout the room. In room 12, oh, I should also mention about Lucy that she does have a preferred chair in the room, too. Really? Yeah. Uh, So in room 12, there's the ghost of a maid named Jacqueline, who I guess cleans up for you or maybe not. I don't know. So maybe there's like, that's my preferred room.
1: Because you like, will just make the bed for you?
0: Exactly. A ghost with Virgo tendencies? Count me in. <laughs> During renovations, the owner's father was spending his nights there for three or four months and would again, like the one guest, constantly hear footsteps and other noises coming from above him in what could be rooms like 18 and 19.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's apparently also a big book book. Or two of recorded happenings from guests and staff available in the front desk, along with pictures and EVP. So everything is pretty well documented.
1: That's pretty awesome. They're very, seem very upfront about it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember covering another hotel that did something similar. And I thought it was the coolest idea ever.
1: Yeah, why not, right?
0: So there's one part of this building that's supposed to be a little different from the rest. It's the only part of the original structure to survive, the basement.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yep. Although you can't go in there normally, you will investigate it during the tours. This is said to be home to angry or even demonic entities, hence the waiver that you have to sign. Gotcha. I couldn't find out much about it online, so I had to make the worst decision of my life. I decided to watch an episode of Ghost Adventures. <laughs> so here's everything I paid 99 cents to learn. Remember, I love you guys, and that's the only reason that I sat through Zach's face for over 40 minutes. The owner, who in other sources said that she really hadn't found evidence of anyone dying or committing suicide in the property, said in an interview with Zach that she was told that there was a body buried under some stairs so she ended up digging with a spoon and found some bones which disappeared the next day. Weird. And then Zach, of course, goes and digs for some bones. But I don't think they found any. They just started digging in the hole that was already open. The owner said that she believes the spirits in the basement might be people who died in the fire in the old hotel, which would make sense.
1: Yeah, that could make sense.
0: The second they start exploring the basement, everyone starts freaking out because it's a TV show, so they have to do that. And they all get tightness in their chest. The EMF detector starts going off and no one can breathe suddenly. Uh, The owner also said that she had previously seen a big black dog or wolf with red eyes, which is what people say hellhounds normally look like. Mm -hmm. So that's creepy. There was also a woman whom I believe was a guest who said that she was possessed when down in the basement and had to, quote, feed the dogs because they were hungry
1: what yeah
0: that's fucking freaky that's creepy it honestly reminded me of um this one coworker that i had mm-hmm. i forget where they went but they went someplace that was haunted and they were going to be part of like an investigation or just hear about the hauntings suddenly she starts crying and she shouts take me i'm dead
1: that's super scary and i
0: think she ended up like fainting and having to be like carried out Mm-mm. yeah it was really weird there's like a video of it on youtube it was definitely creepy uh, so there was a point where they were trying to say this EVP was saying the word no, but all I heard was the sound of air. It sounded nothing like a word at all to me, like most EVPs. Mm. It was in no way a word, in my opinion. Uh, there was a scary EVP though, that was supposed, that supposedly said, I'm coming to get you. It didn't sound like that to me. I heard the I'm coming part, but the rest was really distorted, uh, but still sounded kind of demonic and creepy. Uh. Now, here's where something they found, again, takes away from the owner's previous statement about not finding anything with people dying on the property. Zach, after pausing to sign autographs and be praised by a fan, finds information about a man hanging himself in the hotel bar. Okay. Yeah, it was literally like, okay, let's walk into here. And then suddenly they had someone jump out of a car and be like, oh my God, I love you. Can you sign this autograph for me? You're my favorite. I watch you every day. (laughs) I was like, oh. So, yes, guys, remember, I love you very much that I did this for you. You should feel special. (laughs) So, back to uh, Lucy's room for a minute here. Yeah. I found out from the show that she dislikes men, uh, which I could see given her profession. I'm sure as a sex worker, she doesn't always meet the kindest of men. Fair. Fair assessment. Totally can see it. She came across on an EVP when asked if anyone in the hotel was in danger, and she said, Zach Baggins, and laughed. (laughs) <laughs> yeah
1: i like lucy already
0: so do i i love lucy it's safe to say that she isn't a fan either i guess from that laughter and then they started to mess up the room and zach's all you don't like this you don't like me huh you don't like this is this making you mad he was acting like a bully and Uh, But then for a second, I thought it became kind of porn-like, because when he started tearing the room apart even more, he was like, yeah, is that what you like, huh? Yeah, you like that? Gross. Yeah, it was kind of dirty sounding and a little disturbing, uh, but not for the reasons that I expected the episode to be disturbing. (laughs) Uh, Also, in Lucy's room, they hear a growl, and then over the spirit box or whatever the thing is that goes through the radio stations quickly, Mm -hmm. it says a spirit, like right after the growl. Uh, When asked who is here with us, it says Goodwin, and then before it said Aaron. And uh, for those who haven't seen the show, Aaron Goodwin is uh, the one camera guy. Okay. Uh, They caught a ghost on camera at one point in the hallway moving a wire, and you could see a little something. Uh, So that was pretty cool, but it's a TV show, so who knows if it was real or not because you would easily add effects afterwards. Mm Mm-hmm. So the bread and butter of this story, the basement, it contains this fucking creepy ass giant snowman doll that I do not ever want to see again in my life.
1: What? Yeah. Like a deco a piece of decoration? It's or something? like a
0: giant snowman doll. I don't know what they use it for. Ugh. I don't know their life. <laughs> um but uh like, guess I don't want to know their life. I don't, I really don't. And guess what? Uh this shit is reported to move on its own. So fuck that. Nope. I'm out of there. Burn it, just burn it. Exactly. Should have died in the fire the first time.
1: <laughs> Maybe he did. <laughs>
0: exactly. Maybe it was some guy whose nickname was Frosty, and that's why he's inhabiting oh, the snowman. Goodness. So they start to hear glasses clinking and this dragging sound and other weird noises while Zach uh, seems like he's about to pass out in a chair. Because when they go into this room with the snowman in the basement, Zach just starts to feel sleepy and out of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There's also this weird glowing light that they couldn't explain they just kind of like flashed by at the end of the hallway. Weird. They did manage to get a really good EVP. Uh, it was a, f- it was full voiced and not at all whispery. And for those of you that can't tell, I'm actually not being sarcastic for once. <laughs> so this EVP said, make sure they go. And after that, Zach got scratched by an unseen force. Uh, after that, a broom fell over and then the episode just kind of ended. Like they're like, okay, let's look at footage to see if this broom was pushed up against the wall or if it was like kind of leaning and it was it was fine from before. But I mean, you've got how many people you can always push that over and be like, oh, look what happened. See, that's why I hate shows like that, because I never trust them. So the episode just pretty much ended somewhere after that. All in all, I wish I could have just found the few bits uh, that I would have needed to know somewhere else rather than watching 40 minutes of zach's ego honestly they should just change the name from ghost hunters to zach baggins yelling at ghosts
1: <laughs> zach baggins ghost Hollerer.
0: yeah pretty much He's the ghost holler holler-er. hollerer. yes that so i think i would actually like to either stay here or at least take the tour and investigate i know i just used ghost adventures as a source, but I never really trust it or most any other paranormal TV show. So I just need to see this place for myself to be comfortable with believing all of it.
1: I would go on that tour with you, actually.
0: Oh, awesome. Because I was about to say, how about you, Nicole, here or the best Western down the road?
1: I-, I would stay at the best Western down the road, but I would go on the tour.
0: Okay. We're going to do this sometime then because I've never been to Minnesota. So
1: Minnesota's fun. It's a nice place.
0: Um, So you would definitely go then? Yeah, I would totally go. Awesome. So what would you think?
1: It's interesting. I feel like once we're done our our road trip, that you're gonna have to write um, Eden's travel log of haunted hotels. Oh yeah, since you found some good ones all along the way.
0: I love doing the haunted hotels. I know there's always do. a lot of history and a lot of crazy shit. Because sure, Think sure. about how many people have been in and out.
1: Yeah, high volume people everywhere.
0: I especially love the sleazy hotels. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think this is a unique one. Um, I would I would totally check out the tour i've never heard of that uh, t- like uh, the i mean i've heard of like you know haunted tours of hotels yeah. we get to go places the, normal rep- the public can't access but it's neat that they're very open to be like yeah we'll do an investigation a little mini investigation and see what you see
0: i'm kind of a little afraid though because that one woman got possessed and i also have been possessed before
1: mm.
0: for a short period of time so i'm kind of afraid of that so i'm gonna have to super protect myself yeah but you know uh, my sources for this week were Wikipedia, ThePalmerHouseHotel.com, care CareEleven.com, TravelChannel.com, TripAdvisor.com, ParkRapidsEnterprise.com, and of course, an episode of my least favorite show, Ghost Adventures.
1: Thanks for that story, Ian, I appreciated it.
0: Absolutely. I'm glad you did because I was kind of gave up on life afterwards.
1: <laughs> I understand why. All right, gang, if you enjoyed today's stories, please let us know. You can send your feedback to us at show at gmail.com, or you can rate and review us on the favorite podcatcher of your choice. It always helps when you do give us feedback there and rate and review the show. It puts it out there for more listeners.
0: You can also check out our website if you want to look at some pictures or links or whatever. Uh, we are We're trying to keep on top of it at least, but we might have someone to help with that soon you can go to roadside horror
1: speaking of photos we're on instagram you can follow us on instagram and facebook at roadside horror show we're also on twitter at roadside horror
0: we'd like to thank yox rocks designs for our logo and e massey for our intro and outro music
1: until next week roadsters creep, creep on creeping creepin on, on.